Well, welcome. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, I want to really thank you for being here this morning uh, on this weekend. There's a welcome center through those doors um, at the end. We'd love to give you a gift and uh, get to know who you are. So we are uh, on a journey together, and uh, it's just such a fun journey as we have come together as two churches and now one church, as we refer to it as 2.0, and we're just excited about what God is doing. And each Sunday, as God is working in all of our lives to, to just honor Him and love each other and to experience in the midst of it the transformation that God desires in our lives. We're going to start a new series this morning, um, so if you're a, a guest here, you're here right at the beginning. It's our way of luring you all the way to the end. Um, but we're going to start uh, looking at the epistle that is written by John. John uh, was one of the gospel writers. John was the one that laid his head on the heart of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved as he referred to himself. And he writes uh, as an old man now. He's maybe 90 years old. He's the last of the apostles alive. Um, he's experienced life. He's experienced it both in terms of the joy of walking with Jesus and the hardship of the persecution after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he writes to these uh, believers. Many believe he, he is writing to those that were in the church of Ephesus, but he writes to get them to become aware of the reality of a broken world and the need to stay focused, the need to live out our lives. As I heard Ryan mention this boot camp, and one of the things we want to do is, is we're very well aware, as I hope you are, that what God isn't after um, as church attenders. God is really after disciples. When Jesus' final words came, he said, go out into all the world making disciples and teaching them to obey and, and to mature. And so as Ryan said, we're, we're hoping that each and every one of us would uh, grow up from infancy to adulthood in such a way that we make an impact on our community. And uh, so John is going to teach us over the weeks as Ryan and I share the load of teaching it about how to live our life in fellowship with him, how to experience a joy that's complete, and how to make sure that we recognize the importance of the relational and the moral and the doctrinal overlap that causes us to grow up. So let me um, ask you to pray as we read these scriptures this morning. And we'll start this series. Father, we uh, are always grateful when we can be together and uh, open up your word because we know how important that is to the transformation of our lives. And God, I pray that uh, you would give us all ears to hear, that we would focus in on and allow the Holy Spirit to work inside us. Because God, we know if change doesn't happen from the inside out, it's just conformity. And uh, ultimately, Lord, it doesn't really make a difference. So, Father, we are grateful, and we ask you to speak into our hearts and transform us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to one of the last epistles, the first epistle of John. And we're going to start it. Let me, let me read to you um, 
these first four verses of chapter 1, uh, 1 John chapter 1. It says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Let me read one verse at the end of this epistle because I think it's important to understand something that John and the reason why John is communicating this. It's in verse 19 of uh, 1 John chapter 5. And he says this, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Some versions say, and that the whole world is in the lap of the evil one. And I think why John is communicating that in a sense, he's trying to make us aware of the role that we play in this world that we live in. He says in the beginning of that verse 19, he says, we know that we are children of God. It's an important question. It's one that I would ask you to ask yourselves. Do you know that you're a child of God? Is this thing that we call Christianity something that has changed the way that you look at life? Is it produced in you a certainty of who you are? So the need to grab and snatch is no longer a part of your MO. There's a certainty. We call it assurance. Because we live in a world that John is going to talk about that is filled with sin. And, and he doesn't mean sin in terms of breaking the rules. He means sin in terms of a disease that has happened to humanity through buying into a lie that we could be like God without God. And the end result of that lie was fear, the opposite of assurance. And that fear led to hiding from God. That fear led to being a poser and trying to attempt through some guilt or performance or even religiosity or even maybe moral reformation. Maybe even going to church would somehow change the way that we were or change the world. But what John is saying to us, we either know that we are of God or we absolutely are clueless to the fact that the world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And that's important because of this. We spend a lot of time trying to polish up the outside. We think if a Republican's in office or a Democrat's in office or you have to wear a mask or you don't have to wear a mask or you do this or do that, somehow that's going to make this world Christian. And John is saying, are you kidding me? This world, 
the God of this world that he oftentimes refers to or that Paul refers to in another letter called the letter to the Corinthians, this world is blinded because of the God of this world, the devil himself. And so John and Paul and Peter all in agreement that the world that we live in is filled with disease called sin. And the only way that sin can be dealt with is through what I read to you earlier, is the life that has appeared. And so for you and I, we need to have a certainty that is both objective in terms of its reality and subjective in terms of its reality. It needs to be true according to the scriptures, but it also needs to be true inside of us. Because the thing called Christianity isn't just about being a churchgoer. It's about having this transformation take place in our lives so that we move from infants to mature men and women. And it's not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about initially agreeing with what John is going to teach us so that we can be the kind of people that are taking steps towards maturity, which is, in a sense, what we're trying to help all of us do through our boot camps next week. So that we can understand what this life is as we move from being newborn babes in Christ to being mature women and men of God. So that we don't buy into the reality that somehow we can change the world by way of the world's politics or the world's tactics. But the only thing that's going to change the world is the gospel. And what that gospel does in each and every one of our lives. It brings a change. I want to show you a change. Can you show that picture? Terry, so that's a change. That, that's me at 22. So, yeah. Luckily, I'm not the guy on the left. And the only reason I say that is because he went on to be a, an amazing physician, medical doctor in Philadelphia, doing all kinds of incredible things. He, a Jewish believer, led me to Christ. So, so, yeah. (laughs) But don't let this look fool you. Because I can look different on the outside and be the same on the inside. Because if the change that John is calling us to doesn't happen from the inside out. We're just another club. We're just another political party. And I want you this morning to really hear me because God needs people who are turned inside out. So let's go back to what I just read to you because this confidence that John speaks to in verse 19 of chapter 5. We know that we are children of God. It's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us therefore not throw away our confidence. Chapter 10, verse 35. It's why he says in Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore go boldly to the throne of grace to find grace to help us in our time of need. It's why Solomon says in Proverbs 28.1, the righteous are as bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one's even chasing them. There is this confidence 
that comes as a result of God doing a work inside us that helps us to understand what John says. We know that because of the grace of God, because of the love of God, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of God, our lives have been changed. And it is because of Him and Him alone that we have the ability to move about in this life with confidence because it's His love and His grace and His goodness and His compassion that produces in us what Isaiah would say in chapter 30, verse 15. He said, let quietness and confidence be our strength. And so notice what John says here. And I think it's important that we understand this certainty that John speaks of, this confidence that John speaks of. It comes as a result of the new birth of being changed on the inside. It comes from being born again. It comes from being certain about the fact that we are seated together with Christ. And it isn't a confidence that produces arrogance. It's a confidence that produces humility because we ultimately trust in our God to change our lives and change our world. But it's our responsibility to partner with him, to allow his love that never fails to be so expressive through us from the inside out. It's why Paul said in Romans 5.5, the love of God has been shut abroad in our hearts. That we understand that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it is that inner change that makes all the difference in the world. It's, it makes the church be the church. God knows Christianity runs all, all, all throughout our land. But in so many ways, it's impotent or it's pharisaical. And the way that John is calling us to make a difference is through what he tells us just right in the beginning. Let me, let me look at it again with you. Let me read it again with you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, have touched... Notice what he says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You've heard Ryan at times talk about gospel declaration, gospel proclamation. What John is saying, the very thing that we're proclaiming is the very thing that we saw, we handled, we walked with. Remember this John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus when he spoke to the woman at the well. He saw Jesus heal the blind man. He saw Jesus in that resurrected state. John is testifying to the objective reality of what he saw, what he handled, what he looked upon. John said, I was there. I am testifying to that truth. These are the facts. This gospel that we preach is not a fairy tale. We live off the reality of those men and women who have gone before us who've made this gospel declaration that changed their lives. And the reality of that is what we embrace because before we're changed from the inside, we need to embrace that which is on the outside. And that is the truth of the scriptures. That is why we begin to look that's things like we're talking about. Notice at the end of this, he says, to make our joy complete. The reason our joy can be complete is because of the objective reality that we're looking at. 
We don't get happy by seeking happiness. Have you ever noticed that? You don't wake up one day and say, I'm just going to be happy today. And all of a sudden, happiness becomes your reality. But what John is telling us here is something that we each and every one of us need to embrace. Happiness is the byproduct of seeking something else. All around this room, you see the Beatitudes. You see, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who seek after righteousness. Blessedness doesn't come because we seek blessedness. None of them say, blessed are those who seek to be blessed. Blessedness comes because we're seeking something else. Psalm 1 tells us well as it introduces the book of Psalms. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night. He shall be like a tree that is planted by rivers of living water. His leaf, it won't wither. He'll bring forth fruit in its season. The man who seeks God ends up getting all those other things. And so when John says, I want to make your joy complete, you see, because if we seek righteousness we get righteousness and blessing. If we seek blessing, we get neither. And so when John speaks to us, he's trying to get us to move forward with this gospel proclamation. This word, this God who is true, this God who walked among us, this God who became man, full of grace and truth, who walked with us, who tasted the suffering that we know on a day-to-day basis, who went to the cross and died, who was buried, who was raised from the dead. John says, we were there, we saw it, we handled it, we walked with it, we're testifying to it today. That's why we participate That's why we go to the Word of God, because the Word of God becomes our reality, objectively speaking. But if that objective reality doesn't change the subjective reality in us, we're nothing more than Pharisees. We become self-righteous by what we know, not by who we know. Because we can know all the verses in the Bible and not know the one who put them there, Jesus, and never really be changed, be nothing more than Pharisees who profess to know the right way but don't know what it means to be tender, what it needs to be merciful, what it means to be forgiving, what it means to be gracious. And so he goes on to say, this life appeared. The life. We know the life by knowing the one who came to bring life. That's what Jesus said, right? In John 10 and verse 10, he said, he says, the thief, he comes to destroy but I've come to give you life, and that life more abundantly. When you look at those little kids up front, you say, there's life. We want life. We want fullness of life. We want fullness of joy. We want fullness of love. We want fullness of meaning. We want to live full lives. And John says, we saw that life. We handled that life. We walked with that life, and it's that life that we are testifying to you. And the way that they testified to the reality of that life is they wrote it in this thing called the Bible. Those were the words that were true. That's why oftentimes we talk about spiritual formation, or we talk about hiding the Word of God in your heart, 
Or we go to a, a psalm like Psalm 119 and it says, I, I saw that word and it was a counsel unto me. The word of God becomes a framework for us to begin to order our life. And as we enter into that framework, it changes us. So the objective reality begins to work subjectively in our life through the Spirit, and we're changed. That's what John is saying. He's saying to us, have you met that objective reality? Have you entered into that word that changes us? And so he goes on to say here, that life that we proclaim to you, verse 2, appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. I was at a dinner well, a couple years ago here when I was fierce here, and a bunch of people around the table, I didn't know who they all were. I happened to sit next to a judge. And he asked me what I did. And I said, oh, I was a pastor here in town. He says, oh, I was raised a Catholic, but I quickly uh, discovered that the Bible really was a, just a bunch of fables and stories. And I said, that's interesting. You're a lawyer. You're, you're a judge. Is anybody ever convicted without testimony about the facts? I said, last time I looked in 1 Corinthians 15, it was filled with Paul saying, there were all these guys and they were witnessing to it and they were testifying to it and if you want to ask them go ask them because they're still alive and there's all kinds of facts that are evidence to this death burial and resurrection what do you think judge and he kind of looked at me and kind of scratched his head and changed the subject because the reality of our Christianity is based on an objective reality that has been written down for you and I to read and either it's true based on historical evidence or it's not true at all and we should go party. But the beauty of what John is telling us and what he's going to tell us through this whole letter is hide the word of God in your heart because it is through that word that we are testifying, that word of life, that our life is changed when we hide it into our heart and the spirit moves through it because the very same spirit that Jesus said is the spirit that testifies to what Jesus spoke and it begins to work in us so that this spiritual transformation is indeed an inside-out religion, not an outside-in. So he goes on, he says, in verse 3, and we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Notice how he moves from the proclamation of the testimony of John and the disciples in terms of what he saw, what he heard, and now he says, because of that, I share this with you. I want you to know what that is. There's something about when that word gets into our life that it wants to move us to share it with somebody else. It's what evangelism is really all about. It's not about getting more people to come to church. It's about getting people to come to understand the beauty of this Jesus who provides us with an assurance about who we are in him that enables us to live with confidence instead of fear and anxiety. It allows us to understand what it means to have joy in him, to be complete in him instead of to be insecure and trying to grab a hold of life with all of its, its glitter that never satisfies. 
You know, there's this right brain, left brain theory. You know, the, they say that some of us are right brain and some of us are left brain and some of us are more analytical and some of us are more intuitive. Some of us are much more occupied with all the details and the facts and some of us just really be, would much rather be captured by our imagination which sometimes doesn't go anywhere. But, but nevertheless, whoever you might be, look at your spouse and recognize she's probably different than you. It's probably what attracted you to her or to him. But the beauty of Christianity, it's neither. It's both. You see, one of the beauties that John is telling us about, and he's writing against a heresy that existed at that time that exists today as well. He's writing against the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed in this time that God could have never come in the flesh because everything material is evil and everything that is spiritual is good. It's the immaterial world that represents God, not the material world. It was a convenient way that they could get away with doing things in the flesh that we would call sin, because after all, the material doesn't really mean anything. It's no different than the New Age today and the fact that people say, I believe in God, I don't know who he is, If you ask a Buddhist who God is, they will just say, well, it's nirvana. There is no real person. It's just once you die, you will go, unless you're going through some karmic episode, you will go to be at peace into the world of nothingness. There's no material world in Buddhism. Our God is material. It's why we fall in love with the mountains. It's why we fall in love with each other. From the very beginning in the book of Jesus, our God's got his hands in the mud, creating a universe that is beautiful. And one day, that very same God is going to bring that universe back into order with a new heaven and a new earth, and we will enjoy one another in a beautiful way without sin materially. That's our God. So we're not looking to get away Because it's already come, but not yet. We see the beauty of it in one another's lives through the new birth, and we fall in love with each other fresh because of the grace and completion of the work of Jesus. And yet, at the same time, while we recognize Jesus has come and the kingdom of God is in you, we recognize the fullness of it is not quite yet. This material world will be transformed. We get tastes and glimpses every time we go outside on the lawn and look at the mountains. So John is wanting us to become very clear about the fact that this gospel that we preach is very material. But it's not just material because he says here there is a fellowship to it. He says, and we proclaim to you this gospel proclamation to what we have seen and heard and handled so that you may have fellowship with us. So fellowship, that word koinonia, represents this common experience. Now, I didn't have the same experience, so to speak, or that same testimony as John because I wasn't there when Jesus walked the earth. But the very same spirit that changed Jesus when, changed John when Jesus breathed on the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that wants to enter into our lives. So this fellowship that he wants to share with us is the result of this new birth we call being born again. So it's an objective reality And it's a subjective reality. That objective reality is a part of what this building is all about. 
But a building without a subjective reality is just an empty catacomb. It's just another building. There's nothing special about this building until you show up and you bring life to it. Other than you and the Spirit of God and the Word of God and us loving one another and the kids singing and Jesus being lifted up high, it's just a bunch of wood and stone and windows. And unfortunately, sometimes we lose sight of that and we think we're going to church. You're the church. The church is as much outside as it inside, depending on how the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. And so when John says, this is what we proclaim to you, but it's not just an objective reality, it is a subjective experience. And so I come back to that question, have you been born again? Have you really been changed? If you call yourself a Christian, have you been changed? Now, you might not be changed drastically, and maybe you're in the middle of that change, and maybe you're growing all the time, but if you call yourself a Christian and there's never been any change in your life, let me step on your toe. Because the reality of this proclamation is to say, I want to share this fellowship with you. Remember where we're getting to. We're getting to the fact that John is asking that you would have an experience of a complete joy. So that you're not living in anxiety the way you used to live in anxiety. So you're not snatching and grabbing after the stuff and thinking that's the ultimate place where you're going to find your rest anymore. So that you're not harboring opinions and gripes and, and kind of a attitude about people who disagree with you, but you've entered into the realm, at least you're praying to God and say, God, I don't know how I'm ever going to love my friends, let alone my enemies. Help me. And you're beginning to live in both that objective reality of allowing the word of God to change you so that the subjective reality of the spirit begins to move you. That's what happens when God's people meditate on God's word. It's not just about reading the Bible. It's about saying, okay, God, Martin Luther used to have this thing that he, that he referred to as Acts, A-C-T-S. And when he would read the Bible, A would stand for adoration. He'd read a passage and he'd say, God, show me how I can adore you in this passage. Show me how I can see your beauty in this passage. Show me how your beauty can change me in this passage. The C would represent confession. God, I confess that I don't live this way. I confess that I'm not as thrilled and changed as I want to be this way. God, I confess my shortcomings. The T represented thanksgiving. God, thank you for opening up my eyes in this passage, that I might see wondrous things through your word, that the entrance of your word brings light, that the entrance of your word opens up my eyes to see things differently. And the S stood for supplication. God, forgive me. God, I pray. Not only for me to be more insistent on pursuing you, but I pray for my friends and my family. Acts, A-C-T-S. That's what made the word of God so important to Martin Luther. He would say, God, I have so much to do today. I need to spend at least three hours in prayer to get it done. Because he knew that if it wasn't the word of God and the presence of God that was changing him from the inside out, that his joy would never be complete. Listen to something that I, I read in, um, I read it in, uh, in Jesus Calling. 
which I just love how these things always kind of speak to you. This is, it was August 27th. It said this, spend time with me for the pure pleasure of being in my company. I can brighten up the dullest of gray days. I can sparkle to the routines of daily life. You have to repeat so many tasks day after day. This monotony can dull your thinking until your mind slips into neutral. A mind that is unfocused is vulnerable to the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of which exert a downward pull on your thoughts. As your thinking processes deteriorate, you become increasingly confused and directionless. The best remedy is to refocus your mind and heart on me, your constant companion. Even the most confusing day opens up before you as you go step by step with me. My presence goes with you wherever you go, providing life for your path. Then will I go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O God, my God. That's what happens when we spend time with God. He uses some psalms, Psalm 43, 4, because you are my help, I sing in the shadows of your wings. My soul clings to you, 63. Your right hand upholds me. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. As you meditate, as you memorize, as you study the Bible, as you, as you pray through it, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit that put those words to paper through the apostles, it begins to solidify something in you that changes you. You know, we've been talking about church membership. And so, as we think about becoming a church, we ask for you, first and foremost, to give your heart to God, that we might be members one of another. And then we ask you, would you agree with us, with our statement of faith, with what we're trying to do, and sign your name to this paper? And I know some of you have a hard time with signing your name. Because the reality of it is you believe in your heart that you don't have to put your name on something if you've already given your heart to it. And I get it. I'm that guy plowing the field who give a rip about what anybody thought. So I get it. I get I want to live my life my way. But the truth of the matter is, is all we're trying to do is make an objective reality a subjective reality. In the same way you put your name on that certificate when you said I do to her. Because it's a way for us to be united. It's a way for us to become a people who have an objective reality and a subjective reality all in one. You know, it's, it's like people, as what John is saying, it's like, if I believe what John is refuting, I end up saying, I'm a very spiritual person, but I don't have to go to church. God knows my heart. But the truth of the matter is, Fellowship doesn't happen alone. Fellowship doesn't happen when you, yourself, and I show up. Fellowship happens when we share together. Baptism, baby dedication, communion, the life of Christ in us with each other, praying for each other, loving on each other, coming together, helping one another, moving wood, life together. 
Listen, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1.17. This is the inner life he speaks of. So if we've got an objective reality, now John is saying, I want you to experience this subjective reality. And Paul prays, verse 17, chapter 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Inside. So that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul is praying that they would be changed from the inside out. And that from the outside in, they would show up on Sunday morning, if you will, and put their arms to the plow, and together we would make a difference in our community. That is the way John says that we can grow in our certainty, that we can grow in our assurance that we are of God. Because we continually move from infancy to mature adulthood because we're honoring God in the way that God has testified through John to bring us along the way. So whether you lean to the intuitive or you lean to the analytical, God is showing us here, we need both. Christianity isn't simply intuitive and it's not simply analytical. Christianity is Jesus and it's in him that we share our life with one another. That's what John says, then you will know joy and it will be mature, confident, complete, exhilarating, powerful joy because you've embraced the doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection and the need for the new birth to be changed on the inside out so that that objective reality begins to work subjectively in you, and you're changed. So I ask the question again as I close. Have you been changed? Has this thing that we do on Sunday morning produced a change in you? Are you certain of who you are in Christ? Do you know that you have been given the freedom to be seated together with Christ in the heavenlies so that you can live in the balcony and not in the basement. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Do you look back on your life? Some of you are a lot older. Do you look back on your life and do you see God at work? Do you see those moments when Jesus, through his spirit, has spoken into the recesses of your heart and you're different? I don't know the answer to that question. But I want you to know the answer to that question. Because if you don't know the answer to that question, then we're just playing church. And if you do know the answer to that question, let's together change the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come with a desire to be everything that John is calling us to be. John is telling us that we need to be in touch with the historical, 
the facts. And that through that, we need to embrace the mystical. That we need to understand the work of the Spirit in each and every one of us. Am I more forgiving? Am I more merciful? Do I have more peace? Am I more confident in what you've done? Am I more gracious? Am I more loving? Do I live in anxiety? Or do I live in the joy that sets me free? Father, as John communicates truth, we enter into freedom. And freedom gives us assurance. And assurance gives us confidence to live boldly in this world. So God, as we think about what this gospel represents and what John's about to teach us in this book, help us not just to do the external thing, but help us to change to cultivating the internal thing so that we can look back and really sing with all of our heart, I once was lost and now I'm found. I'm bl I was blind, but now I see. God's changed me. I'm not yet who God wants me to be, but I'm not who I used to be. So God, help me to get there through your love, your spirit, and the fellowship of the saints. Make my joy complete. Father, we love you. And God, do we think about how much you've cared for us through these years, even these last few years. You've watched over us. And Lord, you remind us of that every time we come to the communion table. And so Father, our prayer this morning is to recognize the historical fact of communion objectively but to allow it to do the internal subjective work today that we become truly people of God. So as we think about communion this morning, would you help us to recognize all that you're doing in our life? And Lord, I pray that uh, before we take communion, would you hear the words to this song.
As we um, approach communion, you know, what John is writing to us, he wants us to have that joy. And the truth of the matter is we can't do it alone. The beauty of what John writes is that he wants all of us to participate. That's why he says in this proclamation, I want to share it with you. I want us to enter into this fellowship. And maybe there's no greater way for us in some way to experience that than in communion. But we have this common experience of coming to the table and, and remembering the historical fact that our Savior, he was crucified and buried and he rose from the dead. That's what John is testifying to. And he says, and I don't want to do it alone. I want to do it together. Because God so loved the world, not just this church, but all those who are in churches around our world today, he, he wants more. He wants a relationship. And in the same way he desires a relationship with us, he desires for us to be in relationship with each other. And truth of the matter is, we won't always agree, but will we always love each other? Will we always be gracious with one another? But we always acknowledge that somebody's leading and somebody's following, and it's not because of them, it's because of God's grace. And so we try to do this thing called church, we try to organize it. But an organization without an organism is just an empty tomb. He wants joy complete.